You're listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to the Money and Meaning podcast. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling, and I'm excited to have with us today Ron Kelly from Capital Impact and Lauren Hodges from Mission Launch. This is part of our Unlikely Allies series within the podcast, uh, where we tell stories of unlikely collaborators in the space of creating social change, using the power of markets uh, to drive new solutions. And so just to give a little context for the conversation that Ron and Lauren are going to have, this came to our attention at SOCAP um, as we were preparing the racial equity track for 2017. Um, We did a full track at SOCAP 17 around economic impacts of racial inequities, the business case for racial equity. And one of the primary conversations was around the economic impacts of uh, not just the criminal justice system, but also these really real um, barriers and financial consequences for returning citizens. And it really blew my mind um, learning about it and excited for us to use this podcast to help share the scale of this challenge and the way that folks are responding to it. Um, And Capital Impact is a group that has been a leading community development organization for over 30 years, um, has been a leader in the impact investing space. But this area of investing in returning citizens and using some of their expertise in communities um, and, and partnering with Mission Launch is Uh, is a great partnership that we're excited to highlight. I'd love to start with Lauren to really ground us. I mentioned the scale of this challenge. Can you give us some more understanding of why is this particular issue of returning citizens of so much consequence? Sure. So um, presently, there are 70 million Americans who have an arrest or conviction record, uh, which is one in three. Um, Americans. And so we're talking about an issue that impacts a third of the population. Um, And at scale, we're anticipating by the year 2030 that there will be 100 million Americans who have an arrest or conviction record. So um, this issue of returning citizens and actually even uh, people who are facing barriers for simply having an arrest record um, is something that while it feels like it's other people and it's an issue that doesn't impact us, just kind of mathematically, it impacts uh, many more of us than we're actually uh, talking about. Yeah, I found that number amazing. And then when you think about how many children have a parent or family member that are incarcerated or have a record, the effects on so many aspects of community. Um, how long have you been in this work and when did you really start focusing on Reentry issues. Kind of one of my more popular sayings um, is that I didn't pick prison, prison picked me. And that's because um, I, like a good number of people in this country, actually did not really know about criminal justice or mass incarceration or reentry um, until I was directly impacted by it. So my mom, who's also uh, my co founder, um, was sentenced to uh, prison uh, for a first time non collar. 
or white collar uh, nonviolent offense. Um, and she was originally sentenced to 87 months um, in prison. And for us, that was the first uh, time that our family had actually experienced what mass incarceration is and was. Um, and it was very eye-opening. Um, she was the first person in our community to actually uh, go through the court system. She went to court to defend herself um, and she lost. And we also discovered at that time that there are enhancements that you actually are penalized for going to court and defending yourself. And um, should you lose your case, you oftentimes are, are sentenced to more time for actually even going to court. So it, it was just one of those experiences that um, it's a very out of sight, out of mind system. And we are all kind of taught not to get involved in it. And so in one sense, we all don't think about it. Um, but uh, the the numbers of poverty, there's 8 million more people in poverty just because of mass incarceration alone in this country. And so um, having a record loops you into poverty um, because of the background check process. Um, what was a criminal investigation tool has become a decision-making tool. Nine out of 10 employers use it, four out of five landlords use it. We now have three and five colleges that use it. So anytime you go to uh, to, to build, build a life, actually, there's a good chance that someone's gonna run your background. And now even just having an arrest um, impacts you. And the more that we learned about this through my mom's experience, the more we just felt like we needed to do something. And so what was that? Tell us a little bit about Mission Launch and, and how that was an appropriate response for what you were experiencing. Technically, Mission Launch, kind of the, the beginning of Mission Launch is now eight years old almost. Uh, I um, was at, while my mom was incarcerated, I, uh, she went to prison when I was graduating from undergraduate. So I, I was fortunate in that I wasn't a young kid. One in 28 kids have um, a parent who is currently incarcerated. And that's actually the reason why one of SoCap's partners, Kellogg, has gotten into criminal justice is they realized you can't care about kids in this country and not care about their parents and the issues um, that are facing families in uh, mass incarceration and criminal justice. is It's an overspill to kids. But I was older um, still deeply impacted by it, but I eventually enrolled in business school while my mom was incarcerated. And while at Johns Hopkins in 2010, I had a professor who suggested I, you know, pursue a career in social entrepreneurship. Um, and he told me, you know, like pick a topic that you really know and care about. And at the time I was learning a lot about the reentry journey that my mom was going to be on in a few years. And I entered into a business plan competition. At the time it was for a live work model um, similar to Delancey Street, if anyone's familiar with that model, whereby you provide housing, workforce, um, some wraparound supports. We ended up placing in the school's competition, which kind of drove us to enter into a few more competitions that we would go on to win. But in 2012, we formalized a 501c3. And um, our work has always been around civic technology, so hackathons, human-centered design days, um, as well as inclusive entrepreneurship. What we knew from my mom's experience and from others' experience is that um, an overwhelming majority of people are not going to come home and be able to find jobs. And those that do are going to earn about 40% less just for having a record. And so for us, entrepreneurship was not something we felt like was like a good idea. It's like, this is probably your most viable pathway to a livable wage. And so right now, Mission Launch has evolved into really helping entrepreneurs with records um, flesh out a business uh, that is 
really going to be uh, debt and credit ready um, because um, the average startup cost for a business, unfortunately for folks from this community, you're not going to be able to bootstrap and or uh, have a family and friends around. So we're working with some CDFI partners, um, some community banks and, and potentially a few national banks around how can we help entrepreneurs with records um, build their capacity and also their credit readiness. That's great. And I think that's actually a nice, a nice bridge to Ron and capital impact. So Ron, maybe you can give us a sense of how your work as a CDFI intersected with Mission Launch and how recently this sort of became part of your approach to building communities. Sure. Uh, so we're a national community development financial institution or CDFI. And our work is largely in terms of facilities finance around the country. So we we work across a variety of sectors, including affordable housing, education, healthcare, and healthy food access. And you know, sort of knowing that one in three individuals, as Lauren said, are directly impacted by having an arrest or conviction record. You know, we tend to do our lending in the most low-income areas in the country. And we have reason to believe that more than one in three individuals are directly impacted by having an arrest or conviction record in neighborhoods that are sort of our prime lending targets. Um, and then sort of going back to Lindsay's point earlier, too, about how it's not just those who are directly impacted, but it's the families that come along with that. Right. So sort of the order of magnitude of uh, the, the number of beneficiaries who uh, are um, you know taking part in the services that are offered through the lending that we're doing um, that have a, a direct uh, touch point on the criminal justice system is so high, right? And we knew that, and we sort of looked at our portfolio and, and tried to get a sense of you know how we were touching that population, frankly, indirectly, right? Um, and so we looked at the the charter schools in our portfolio, and we saw that we had a couple charter schools that had programming in place that tried to make it so their students didn't enter the criminal justice system in the first place. And we looked at our health centers in our portfolio and saw that at least one had um, healthcare services that were provided to individuals while they were incarcerated with the intention that the care that they were receiving would continue um, uninterrupted once they were uh, released from prison. And we saw that in our healthy food lending, we had some social enterprises that um, focused on employing only those individuals that had uh, an arrest or conviction record. Um, so we, we saw ways in which we were sort of indirectly touching on this population and we wanted to really do something more, but we realized that we didn't have the subject matter expertise to be able to, to do it with any sort of degree of legitimacy and that um, we didn't really know where to begin. So I think for a while we felt like, you know, gee, this is so important. We really want to do something, but we have no idea where to begin because every time we would look at the research, we would see, that the, the scale of what it is that we were trying to have some degree of impact on was just so large. And knowing that there were 
over 40,000 uh, documented barriers to reentry for individuals. You know, where do we start? And so that's sort of where we were for quite some time, you know, looking internally, trying to learn as much as we could, trying to get a sense of what programs and policies were already in place at uh, institutions that were our current borrowers. Um, but we didn't really know where else to go for quite some time. And, um, and then we ended up at SoCal. And, uh, you know, I went to the neighborhood economics session that year at SoCal and was happy to see that there was a social enterprise talking about uh, reentry and the relationship sort of built from there. And I promise that we don't try to plug the connections that happen at SOCAP, but this is somehow how this unlikely allies theme comes to us is that we just, you know, we've always believed that breaking down the silos between different areas can yield a lot of really interesting results. And then it's just the the cherry on top of my day when someone says, oh, actually this partner that we have, we met at SOCAP. So um, lovely that that's how it started. How did it, how did it progress from there? And I, that's to either of you, sort of what was the, um, knowing that Capital Impact was kind of looking for this, that's great. Lauren, was it a surprise to you that a group like Capital Impact was uh, interested in engaging in that way? And, and what did the engagement look like? Yeah, so what's interesting is at the time when uh, Ron and I met, so we, we, I presented at, I think, twice. I think we met briefly at Neighborhood Economics, and then, mm-hmm. as luck would have it, we're both based in the same metro area, so we were able to easily connect thereafter. It was pretty easy for us in the sense of we had a conversation, and we were like, oh, we both are in D.C. This should not be complicated. Um, but when we uh, originally met, we were not talking about CDFIs, and we were I didn't even know what a CDFI was at the time. <laughs> And we were not talking about credit readiness and personal credit and financial resiliency at the time. Um, For us, we were still very much in unlocking barriers for entrepreneurs. And um, there are a whole host of barriers. And I think for Mission Launch, what we had realized was the reality is kind of like what I say is like we could get folks all ready for a dance. But if they go to a party and there's nobody to dance with, then like we didn't do our job. And so... Um, as we continue to have conversations with Ron and we understood what Capital Impact um, did and what they were trying to do, it became a little bit more clear, like, oh, maybe this should be something that we should focus on. And Ron would come over to our office frequently um, in DuPont Circle in D.C. And there were quite a few kind of like one on one conversations with Ron, getting to know the organizations. Um, and then he uh, said, hey, I think, you know, I, I would like to bring another one of my colleagues in and see if we can't get some buy-in from the organization. So it's been a relationship that over um, the last year, probably a year and a half, I think, um, we've been slowly evolving. And for us, the culmination was an event that we uh, co-led together this uh, April, this past April, um, at which point it was kind of us bringing, you know, all of who we were as individual organizations to uh, a, a new group that we are trying to, to support and working together. Yeah, and the the event that that Lauren mentioned um, was a convening that we called "Reimagining Opportunity: Financial in- Inclusion for Customers with Criminal Records." And what we decided internally would make the most sense for us was 
we sort of took, you know, we took a step back after we learned a lot from these conversations with, with Lauren and her co-founder, Teresa. And we thought, you know, we can't be the only CDFI that's really wrestling with this. And frankly, we shouldn't be the only CDFI that's really wrestling with this. And we didn't really know if this was on the radar of other CDFIs the way it was on our radar. And we really wanted to have an opportunity to have a conversation with some other CDFIs um, to see, you know, if this was something that they also cared about and something that they wanted to do something about. And I think the the reality also is that we're, we're a certain type of CDFI, right? We're a loan fund that does facilities finance, you know, fairly large transaction sizes as CDFIs go. CDFI is um, Community Development Finance Institution. Uh, and Ron, maybe you can sort of also give a little context, just, you know, you're sort of specifying the ways that capital impact is unique as a CDFI, but the broader landscape um, of these community development organizations is really evolving in a lot of ways right now, it seems. Yeah, yeah. So CDFIs really come in in all shapes and sizes, right? So there are large CDFI loan funds like Capital Impact that do, you know, fairly large um, facilities finance transactions. And then there are CDFI banks that operate like a normal bank with a branch location in your neighborhood where they can offer, you know, savings accounts and checking accounts and, you know, direct, um, you know, financial services products. And there are CDFI credit unions that operate seemingly like a normal credit union, right? And then there are other CDFIs that really focus on uh, micro lending. So very small, you know, thousand dollar loans to an entrepreneur to really, you know, get a home-based business started, that sort of thing. Um, And we realized that, you know, looking at these 40,000 barriers and looking at how folks who are coming out of prison come from all different types of neighborhoods with all different types of backgrounds, right? There isn't a one-size-fits-all solution from a financial services perspective to uh, deal with those 40,000 barriers and those all very unique reentry cases. Um, so we really wanted to have a conversation with other CDFIs um, that focused on different types of lending products uh, to really have a conversation about how all of us collectively had a role. Um, and, and frankly, also that uh, we wanted to broaden the conversation to not just be CDFIs. We wanted to bring in traditional banks that are more motivated by profit, maybe, than we are, um, you know, that don't have a mission orientation. Uh, we wanted to bring them into the conversation, too, because the reality is these are their customers as well. And, you know, these are the people who live around their branch locations as well. So um, we designed a program uh, to have a conversation about the barriers and having a conversation about uh, some product offerings that have been successful here in the D.C. metro area. Um, And 
I, I think it was a very useful conversation and we, you know, we brought together, uh, you know, national CDFIs like Capital Impact, uh, CDFIs that operate pretty exclusively here in the, the DC metro area like City First Bank and the Washington Area Community Investment Fund. Uh, also national banks like City were there. Um, and there were several DC city agencies there that wanted to, you know, talk about the support services that they offer, uh, both in terms of, um, you know, help with entrepreneurship programs for returning citizens and, and other, uh, other ways in which they can, can help returning citizens, like things like uh, legal services to help individuals who've had their identity stolen while they've been incarcerated um, it, it was really a, an, a convening that sort of ran the full gamut in terms of the, the types of conversations that should be had to talk about the way in which financial institutions have a role with this, with this community. And, um, and I think one of the most important things that we did was, you know, there were about 45 people in the room. And when we went around the room and everyone introduced themselves, it was clear that I think eight of the 45 had direct lived experience of incarceration, which really changed the dynamic of the conversation. We set aside time on the agenda to hear direct lived experience of individuals who were incarcerated and are uh, battling the, the challenges of reentry and in the process also really trying to uh, you know, make their way through the complicated maze of financial services that are available to individuals who have a, an arrest or conviction record and how they successfully made their way through that and started a successful small business, for example. Um, so I, I think the, the main takeaway, I think that we, you know, we wanted to have folks go away from this convening was that, you know, financial institutions are not alone in thinking about these issues and that there's, I think, power in numbers in terms of having a conversation together to learn together how we can address some of these concerns. You're listening to Money and Meaning. Find out more about SOCAF conferences, events, and digital ways to connect to the impact investing community at socialcapitalmarkets.net. It's worth noting that a convening doesn't doesn't override decades of sort of systemic separation between these communities. And so I'm curious just to talk really frankly about, you know, Lauren on your side as an organization, but also representing this population. Um, what are the areas where there's concern to, you know, interact in significant ways with traditional financial institutions and then on Ron's side, you know, I'd be curious to know how much of the eagerness to obviously address a huge currently unserved population is sort of tempered by these entrenched behaviors that have kept those those folks out. Um, so, Lauren, can you maybe start if if there have been concerns or areas where you've just been cautious in moving forward in this way? So one of the things that we were um, big on, um, one was kind of what Ron said, which is wanting to make sure that 
uh, folks who actually have the lived experience um, were in the room and that the panel was actually really early on, right? And I think we were very intentional in the design for that reason. And um, the truth is that in one, exactly what you said, one convening is not gonna be able to do a lot of the work. And as we were designing it, we recognized there's a significant number of conversations we just could not get to. Um, and community trust building is one. And I think um, in the end, there is reason why people opt out of traditional mainstream banking situations. And a lot of it is dealt with either, you know, reality or perception of, of who can be trusted and who really has your interest at heart. Um, and so for this community, one of the things that we often talk about is um, the need to build bridges, right, and, and and kind of building blocks, getting people into mainstream systems, which for us is critically important. And I, and I often say, like, for national banks, it's not that a national bank isn't the right place. Oftentimes, it's just that, you know, to work your way up to a national bank in which you really don't have a relationship. Like, for most of us, if, if we think about it, most of us don't really have banking relationships anymore. Um, and when you're in a vulnerable position, relationship and trust really matters. Um, and so I think what we can look at that, one of the big takeaways uh, that we wanted to have was what was gonna be our, our next step after the conversation. So there's a follow-up paper and there's some dialogue around um, a working group. And the intention of the working group is to actually look at the products and services that are being offered um, and making sure that these are good products and services. And even more than that, then the question becomes, if there are good products and services, um, how are they being communicated to people? And, and in one sense, who who's the messenger of these products and services? And if the messenger isn't someone in your community who looks like you, who's using the product, who says like, hey, here's how this helped me, there's still this level of, I don't know you and I can't trust you. And um, for better or worse, there are a lot of banks that are in poor communities and communities that are typically impacted by mass incarceration and don't do anything really for the community. Um, it, it barely take deposits. Um, and, and so I think that that's, there's just all these, there's a lot to unpack. But for us as an organization, we feel like our job is to build a bridge between um entrepreneurs with records in particular for us, but just also, you know, individuals with records to mainstream banking products and services, because this is still in a lot of ways, the only way to get people out of poverty and, and having people in alternative banking systems, having people in predatory relationships, it is still not a good relationship. It's still not a good situation. And so um, the question becomes, how do we bring these two communities together? And um, you're absolutely right. Conservative banking communities are awfully deeply, deeply, deeply entrenched. And I, I've been in contact with one national bank for three years, not even kidding you. They approached me. I know six different people from the same institution, but these institutions are huge and they don't work. The departments don't work together. They don't talk together. Um, they brought us in several times and they cannot get um, their leadership around the branding and the marketing issue of how will our other customers perceive us as being friendly to people with records. And we're like, we got to make the business case. Um, and for them, they're like, we understand all the money we're not making, but there, it, it is a concern. It's a branding concern. Um, it's a marketing concern. And it's also a culture and a mindset shift around um, being inclusive, intentionally inclusive, and why inclusivity, you know, in this case, is good for their bottom line. And if it's good for your bottom line, here's all of the social benefits.
Yeah, that's really interesting that that's sort of where the holdup is. Um, Ron, I'm curious, is, is it that? Is it a branding marketing concern? Is it a bottom line concern? Where did you face friction? So I, I think it's it's sort of all of the above, right? And I think that um, I think that part of it is also if you if you do research and you map in a community where concentrated poverty is, and then also map where concentration of individuals with arrest or conviction records are, those are the same areas. If you then overlay on top of that where banks have branch locations or where credit unions have branch locations, they're generally not in those neighborhoods. So I think, you know, that doesn't mean that there's a lack of financial services available in that community. It means that often the financial services that are available in that community are predatory in nature. They're pawn shops and check cashers. Um, And so, you know, individuals who live in those communities, they have access to financial services, but they're paying a whole lot more and they're being taken advantage of in the process. And so I think that, you know, this goes back, I think, to the history of redlining in this country and disinvestment that's been going on, you know, for decades and decades. And, um, you know, it's, you know, we, we thought a lot about how to try to, um, to frame this issue for the convening, right? There was a point where we thought, you know, should we should we talk about the uh, this population as a specific sector within the underbanked population? Like, is that is that the hook? And then we we thought that's not really it. And then we thought, well, you know, should we just come straight at it and talk about risk and demonstrate to people who are um, concerned about risk that uh, individuals with an arrest or conviction record are no riskier than any other type of customer. Um, it's just that you might need to think about them in a different way, right? Sort of going back to Lauren's earlier point about, uh, you know, the way in which uh, a, a record is is being used against individuals for employment and for other purposes, right? Um, so I think that, you know, it, I think we definitely wanted to be sure that we had a majority of the the population in the convening representing financial institutions. Um, and we had to be able to talk about this issue in language that would be important to them. Um, but I think that, yeah, I mean, the, the reality really comes back to the fact that, you know, largely individuals who are suffering because of this issue are living in communities that have been often ignored by traditional financial institutions. You're listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and you can find out more about the SOCAP Conference, SOCAP 365, and sign up for our newsletter at socialcapitalmarkets.net. So I'm curious... For both of you, um, you've started this work with the convening. When you look out ahead of, you know, continued collaboration, um, what would success look like? And and are you seeing pieces of that really start start to move? I, I think for us at Capital Impact, you know, success for us is knowing that we are having a dialogue with lots of other financial institutions, both CDFI and non-CDFI, 
who are taking concrete action to change policies internally, to provide financial services uh, to individuals who have arrest or conviction records, or rethinking underwriting policies for facilities finance to include um, facilities that would directly impact the lives of individuals who have an arrest or conviction record. Um, and that, you know, we, we chose Washington, D.C. For the, for the first convening because it's, you know, it's the community in which we're headquartered. I think we'd also like to see these conversations happening in other communities. And we, we sort of have a, a short list of other communities that we're considering to have similar conversations in where we would, you know, play the role of a convener and come in and, and you know, have a similar conversation with local financial institutions in those markets and, and other sort of nonprofit and government partners that could play a role. And, you know, I think for, for us, you know, we know that as a facilities financer, we're not the only type of financial institution that uh, is part of the answer, right? And we, we really want to raise the visibility of the issue in a manner that also raises the voices of those who are directly impacted and really essentially create a participatory uh, planning process in communities that allows individuals who've been directly impacted by incarceration to have a voice in the way in which financial institutions can help uh, break some of the systems that are keeping them in places uh, that are not ideal, right? Opening up opportunities for them to have easy access to a savings or a checking account, which seems pretty minor, right? But it's it's a barrier for individuals who, who have these arrest or conviction records, um, you know, helping financial institutions to think about their underwriting procedures for small business lending so they can understand how to vet a, an entrepreneur that has an arrest or conviction record, that sort of thing. That's, that I think would be success for us. And we don't, we don't want to define success for other financial institutions, right? Cause it's um, I think for them, they need to figure out, you know, their own unique market opportunity. But I think for for us, success would be knowing that these conversations that we're helping to seed around the country are getting banks to think about these issues and take action. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add really to, to that, because I feel like Ron gave some really good specific things that would be great to see. I feel like um, in, a, in a conversation of equity, what we're really after is for people with arrest or conviction records to be just viewed as customers, right? Like I think um, one of the things that we're really big advocates of is, you know, we, we need to get to the place of, of now what, like we have the, the, the more we get to this conversation of like, okay, so people have arrest or conviction records, like now what, like we, we, you know, like we, we can get caught up in a lot of dialogue, um, that it feels very heavy because one of the things that I actually uh, just found out, Ron, uh, cause you mentioned a couple of times is my mom was at a conference last week, uh, national criminal defense uh, lawyers. And apparently the collateral consequences has gone up to over 70,000, right? You, we used to say that there were over 44,000 known collateral consequences for having an arrest or conviction record, which means 
if you have a record, depending upon where you are in this country, you could bump up against up to 44,000 things, right? That could make it a lot harder to proceed in with whatever you're trying to do. The number is now up to 70, over 70,000. And so when we talk about how, you know, success, really the conversation of equity is people need to be able to just build a life, right? At, at, at any level for themselves. And as it relates to business and banking, I'm like, people need to be able to fail at the rate of everybody else. But that also means they need to be able to succeed at the rate of everybody else. And so all we're asking for, all we're talking about is how can we move right now a third of our population to the place of, you know, this, this, out of this place of perpetual disenfranchisement and of an invisible life sentence whereby you have been released from prison or jail potentially, or you may have been arrested, but there's this record that now follows you absolutely everywhere you go. And there are over 70,000 ways in which this record can prohibit you from moving into a place of equitable opportunities. It's just incredible. And when you think that that affects one out of three Americans, we're basically forcing a permanent depression on a third of our population. And I think just, you know, anyone who is interested in the economic well-being of communities, of any any social justice issue, any other economic issue is so tied to this. And so I just, you know, Lauren, really commend you and your mom for taking this head on. And um, Ron, so excited to hear about the ways that not only is Capital Impact directing more attention here, but bringing your peers and, you know, others in the banking industry along with you. Thank you both so much for taking the time to be here with us, to share, you know, the ways that you're collaborating, the the numbers around this, which as you said, it's, you know, it's in plain sight, but it's, um, out of sight, out of mind as well. So thank you both. And please continue to join us on the Money and Meaning podcast. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more about what you've heard, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us at SoCap Markets on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.